This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the UC San Diego Center for Healthy Aging's monthly public lecture event titled The Future of Age-Friendly Communities, Preparing for Elder Boom in San Diego, sponsored by the San Diego Foundation. My name is Danielle Glorioso, and I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Healthy Aging and the Stein Institute for Research on Aging. I have to tell you, I am so delighted to see such a wonderful turnout tonight. Isn't this amazing to see how many people are here tonight? Wow. What this turnout tells me and the foundation and all of us doing work in aging is that there really is a need and an interest in coming up with solutions for creating an age-friendly community. For those of you who are new to us, the Center for Healthy Aging focuses on advancing lifelong health and well-being through research, training, and community outreach. Our center expands upon the work of the Stein Institute and serves as an umbrella organization for all aging-related work here at UC San Diego. For the first time in the history of any major university in the U.S., we have brought together every major component of the campus to address healthy aging through a truly cross-campus, multi-professional collaboration. So I have to tell you, this truly is an exciting time with a great deal of momentum in the field of aging. The work that we do is supported entirely through donations, so I'd like to take a moment to thank all of you who have so generously supported the work we've been doing for well over 20 years. Um, Without your help, we would not be forging exciting new advances in aging without your support. If you have interest in supporting the work we're doing or learning more about our lectures, you can find us at aging.ucsd.edu. As I mentioned earlier, the San Diego Foundation has generously sponsored this lovely event and brought in an absolutely distinguished speaker for us tonight. So I'd like to have everybody join me in thanking the generosity of the Foundation for sponsoring this wonderful event tonight. Uh, Now I'd like to have the opportunity to introduce Dr. Emily Young from the San Diego Foundation. Dr. Emily Young leads the San Diego Foundation's Community Impact Department, working with donors, nonprofits, volunteers, and other community partners to direct charitable giving to the region's most pressing needs in order to ensure that all San Diegans can enjoy a vibrant quality of life. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Emily Young. Good evening, everybody, and thank you, Danielle. And thank you to our partner, UC San Diego Stein Institute for Research on Aging, which is really, truly leading a movement that encourages us to see healthy aging in a new way. And the San Diego Foundation, through our Center for Civic Engagement and Age-Friendly Communities programs, is truly delighted to have Ai-Jen Poo here tonight with us. She is a MacArthur Fellow and the author of The Age of Dignity, which I think many of you have, signed copy, uh, preparing for the elder boom. And she'll be speaking with you tonight. We look forward to her remarks, but equally to your questions and our community conversation regarding the challenges and the opportunities for building an age-friendly community for the San Diego region. We have many donors and board members and community leaders who are here tonight, and we thank you for your engagement and your interest in age-friendly communities. 
And a special thanks to our donor champion, Don Ambrose, whose vision and support through the Del Mar Healthcare Fund at the San Diego Foundation has really helped make tonight possible. So thank you so much for that. And Don and Ijen share a common belief that the demographic shift in our country and in our region offers an opportunity to create a system that affirms the dignity of people at every age. We also welcome tonight's moderator, San Diego County Director of Health and Human Services, Nick Metchion. He has a tiny job because he heads the largest health and human service agency in the country with uh, uh, an agency that serves 3.2 million people in San Diego County. So we really appreciate your hard work. And um, we're really delighted to have him here um, in our region supporting the public health um, of all San Diego residents. And in fact, thank you to Nick Maccione's leadership, together with Ellen Schmieding and Mark Sellers at Aging and Independent Services. Uh, the County Board of Supervisors just recently voted on Tuesday to uh, pursue membership with the World Health Organization and AARP Age-Friendly Communities Network. This is a really big deal. So thank you very much for your leadership and hard work in that regard. You can really put our region on the map in the country and leading the way and building more age-friendly communities. And with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Dilip Jeste. And Dr. Jeste is the Senior Associate Dean for Healthy Aging. He's also Estelle and Edgar Levi Chair of Aging, Director of the Stein Institute for Research on Aging, and if that's not enough, he's a Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry and Neurosciences at UC San Diego. He's a true pioneer in the field of successful and healthy aging, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Jaleep Jeste. Good afternoon, and thank you, Emily, for a kind introduction. It's really a pleasure and a privilege being here. We cherish the partnership with San Diego Foundation, uh, and also with the Aging and Independent Services. Uh, I want to congratulate the San Diego Foundation, Don Ambrose, and the Aging and Independent Services for the recent approval by the San Diego Board of Trustees, um, of uh, the Board of Supervisors of the Age-Friendly City Initiative. So congratulations. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, the moderator and the speaker for today. The moderator, Nick Machion, is, uh, as you heard, director and deputy chief administrative officer of San Diego County's Health and Human Services Agency. It is one of the largest such agency in the nation. And as Emily said, it cares for 3.2 million people. And the goal of this agency is to make sure that there is appropriate public health, safety, and well-being for all the residents of the county. And Nick specifically is responsible for initiating a groundbreaking initiative called Live Well San Diego uh, that started in 2011. And its goal has been to promote health, wellness, and economic vitality of the county. So thank you very much, Nick, for the work you have done. And then 
It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Ai Jianpu. Uh, she is the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and co-director of Caring Across the Generations campaign. She was a student at uh, Columbia, and 20 years ago, 1996, she began organizing immigrant women workers. So really, I mean, think about vision. I mean, this was 20 years ago when very few people were paying attention to that issue. And she noticed that there's an increase in the number of domestic workers who were originally hired as nannies and housekeepers, but then their jobs changed to providing home care for their employer's aging relatives. And so she realized that there is something that needs to be done both for the seniors with disabilities and their caregivers as well as care providers. So with that in mind, she launched Caring Across Generations. This is a national coalition that includes more than 200 advocacy organizations in the country whose goal is to transform the long-term care system in the U.S., focusing on the needs both of the aging Americans with disabilities and, and their caregivers and the care providers. And the goal is to ultimately to ensure access to affordable care for the seniors and access to quality jobs for the workforce. Her resume, if you read it, it's really absolutely amazing. In 2013, she was chosen as a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. As if that was not enough, the next year, 2014, she was given MacArthur Genius Award. Since then, she has been in Times 100 Most Influential People in the World, Newsweek's 150 Fearless Women. I love that title. Thanks. <laughs> Fortune's World's 50 Greatest Leaders and the Nonprofit Times Power and Influence Top 50 Lists. Ms. Poe's work has been featured in many publications, including New York Times, Washington Post, Time, CNN, and most recently, she's the author of a book titled The Age of Dignity, Preparing for the Elder Boom, in a changing America. So please join me in giving a big hand to Ms. Brooks. What an honor it is to be here with all of you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and celebrate this incredible um, progress that's been made here in San Diego in the age-friendly community movement. This is a huge moment for us nationally to have San Diego officially recognized as an age-friendly community. Could we just do one more round of applause for this incredibly historic moment? <laughs> and 
And a special thanks to the San Diego Foundation and the Stein Institute for hosting me today. I'm incredibly honored, and I'm looking forward to the conversation that we're going to be having tonight because it is really about the future for all of us. Um, I want to actually start tonight's uh, conversation with bringing this issue home for all of us. Um, I'm going to ask you to help me prove that a famous saying that Rosalind Carter, the former First Lady Rosalind Carter once said, is actually true. Um, And this you may have heard before. She said, there are only four kinds of people in the world, people who are caregivers or will be caregivers, people who need care or will need care. Only four kinds of people. And so what I'd like for you to do is take the next a couple of minutes and turn to the person sitting next to you and share a story about someone who cared for you in your life and the value of that relationship. So hopefully you're sitting next to somebody you don't know so we can start building this movement right now. Um, We're going to take four minutes, two minutes each way. Okay. We're going to start coming back together. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. The fact that each and every one of us has a story gets to the heart of the opportunity at hand. I'm also going to share my story, but first I want to talk a little bit about one of my favorite speeches of all time. It was given by the author George Saunders at the 2013 Syracuse University commencement. In helping the young graduates anticipate their futures, Saunders said, the things we regret most in life are not the things that we might expect, but rather failures of kindness. Those moments when another human being was standing there right in front of us suffering And we responded mildly, sensibly, reservedly. To look at it from the other end of the telescope, who in your life do you remember most fondly with the most undeniable feelings of warmth? Those who were kindest to you. Now, Saunders does go on to admit that kindness is, in fact, not easy. But he believes that it becomes more natural with age. He quotes the poet Hayden Carruth, who wrote near the end of his life that he was mostly love now. Saunders wished for the graduates to learn this lesson early, to embrace kindness, avoiding failures of kindness, and instead striving to be ever more connected to others and ultimately mostly love. Now, I come from an immigrant family, and I don't know, I had the great gift of growing up with my grandparents, and I don't know if they were born this way or they grew to become mostly loved, but they certainly were that by the time I came into the world. They showered me and my sister with love, they cared for us, they laughed with us. From my grandmother, I learned how to appreciate and cultivate laughter. She's one of those people who believes that if you laughed three times a day from the bottom of your belly, you'll stay healthy your whole life. Um, 
And she also taught me very practical skills like how to use the potty, which ended up being quite useful. Um, My grandmother also taught me how to cook, which we both admit we have not yet nailed. We are still working on that. From my grandfather, I learned hard work and discipline. He was a Tai Chi uh, master, a a lifelong practitioner, and also teacher. And I grew up, I remember watching him from my bedroom window practice every morning with incredible focus and patience and consistency in the driveway with those slow and steady, deliberate motions. And it was with him that I also developed a deep appreciation for the hidden strategies of the television show Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) I feel incredibly fortunate to have been cared for by both of them. Two extraordinary people on different sides of my family, but very similar life experiences of war, poverty, migration, hard work, raising families, each an incredibly full life of hardship and triumph. And then later in life, their stories begin to diverge. My paternal grandfather lived a long and, for the most part, healthy life to the age of 93. However, those final months will haunt me forever. After my grandfather's vision deteriorated, we had to place him in a nursing home against his wishes. And the memory of visiting him there stays with me still to this day. My grandfather's bed was in a dark room that he shared with half a dozen other people, some of whom were completely still and unmoving, and the others were uh, in incredible pain and suffering. It smelled of mold and illness. And when I found him, it it was clear that he hadn't eaten or slept for days, and he was incredibly afraid. A shadow of the strength um, and purpose, purposeful man that I grew up with. And he passed away after just three months in that facility. Now, on the other hand, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, is still with us, and she will turn 90 this month. Yes. She lives in her own apartment uh, right here in Southern California in the San Gabriel Valley, across the street from a Chinese grocery, not far from a Chinese hair salon where they know how to do her perm just right. Um, She goes to church twice a week and even sings in the church senior choir. She and I play mahjong together. And once a year, she'll let me win... uh, So I keep interested, (laughs) Um, usually on my birthday. (laughs) Um, But at 90, she is truly, in Dr. Atul Gawande's words, living life on her own terms, the author of her own story. And it brings me tremendous peace to know that after caring for so many of us, and bringing so much richness to our lives that she is able to continue to be the author of her own story. Two grandparents, both made of incredibly strong stock, both loved by their family dearly. So what made the difference? A woman named Mrs. Sun. Mrs. Sun is the home care worker who looks after my grandmother. A few times a week, Mrs. Sun comes and assists with the things that have become more difficult for my grandmother over time. 
things like lifting, shopping, sometimes cooking, although that's usually a team effort. Our last big scare was when my grandmother slipped and fell as she was rushing to catch the bus to go to church. Now Mrs. Sun or her husband always make sure that my grandmother gets safely to church on time. Mrs. Sun is also an immigrant from China and has become a key part of my family's care team. Her own family of two grown sons and her husband have become like extended family to ours. Now, my uncles and my mom do a tremendous amount to care for my grandmother, a tremendous amount. But none of us can quite imagine what our lives would be like without the support of Mrs. Sun. It is truly a team effort. Now, like so many families with aging relatives, my family did not have a plan. We did not have a plan. And that lack of a plan proved painful in the case of my grandfather. A few years later, in the case of my grandmother, we were simply fortunate to find Mrs. Sun. We got lucky. And having her has changed everything, especially my grandmother's quality of life. And what's become clear to me as I do this work is that we as a country don't have a plan either. Whether you're an overstretched family caregiver, struggling to hold down a so-called day job while caring for your loved one, or you can't afford the care you need, or you can't find the right long-term care option, you're not alone. It's all of us. And it's something that we usually blame ourselves for, think that we did something wrong. But when it's all of us, there's something more fundamental at play here. There's a deep and fundamental design flaw, a system failure. And it's gotten to the point where we, as individuals, as families, and as a nation, we can no longer afford not to have a plan. We need a care plan for America. Because every eight seconds, someone turns 65 in America. By the end of 2015, four million of us will have reached retirement age. The baby boom generation, aging plus advances in healthcare and medicine that have extended our life expectancy by nearly 20 years since 1930, longer than any of us could have ever imagined just decades ago. The combined effect is referred to by any number of ominous names, the silver tsunami, the gray revolution. I prefer a much more optimistic name, the elder boom, because I do believe it is about possibility. But whatever you call it, what this means is by the year 2050, more than 27 million Americans will need care or assistance just to meet their basic daily needs. But for the vast majority of that 20 million of us, care won't mean living at home, as the authors of our own stories, like my grandmother with someone like Mrs. Sun. For most, if we continue on the path that we're on, it will look something more like what my grandfather endured. Or, and, and or, some combination of bankruptcy, debt, loss of housing, loss of jobs, incredible um, stress, isolation, 
unless we do something very, very different. And that dark ending, to be clear, that my grandfather faced is costly. There's an emotional cost of what he endured and what our family must live with now, our feeling of failure. But then there's also a financial cost. A private room stay in a nursing home in New York costs an average of $150,000 per year. Unaffordable and unimaginable for the vast majority of us. So then perhaps the solution is quite simple. If we had more caregivers like Mrs. Sun, family caregivers would have more support, and the more than 90% of us who would prefer to age in our communities, connected to our families, could actually age the way we want to, right? Well, not exactly, because there's this other crisis that we're dealing with. The more than 2 million people, who are mostly women, many of them women of color, who currently work as home care workers, personal care aides, domestic caregivers today, can barely sustain in their jobs. It's the kind of job that's not even considered a real job. It's often called, called companionship or help, and we're still fighting for inclusion in some of the most basic worker protections that all of us take for granted. Since the creation of the nation's labor laws in the 1930s, professional caregivers and domestic workers have faced exclusion upon exclusion from protections, including wage and hour laws, among many, many others. Now, this is beginning to change, thanks to the wonderful organizing of home care workers and domestic workers all across the country. And one important victory that is very recent is that uh, the Federal Department of Labor actually moved forward a rule change that went into effect last October that brought two million home care workers under minimum wage protections for the first time in 80 years. That, I think, is worth applauding. (laughs) But we are still looking at a workforce where the wages are unfathomably low, with an average wage of $9 per hour, so low that the workforce, mostly women of color and immigrant women, that we count on to care for our loved ones can barely care for their own. Now, especially when we think about the growing numbers of the workforce who are undocumented immigrants, trapped in the shadows, vulnerable to deportation at any minute, without a pathway to legal status. Women like Mirla Baldonado, who is a Filipina caregiver who helps elders in the Chicago area live independently. She's had over 20 clients working 24-hour shifts four days a week, lifting clients in and out of bed, administering medicine, helping to do physical therapy, plus cooking and cleaning. She's introduced the Filipino cuisine to over two dozen Midwestern families. She's very proud of that. Um, Especially softer foods like noodles and stews have been a big hit. For this work, Mirla takes home between seven and nine dollars per hour. And she has five children to support. 
A recent study um, by the home care think tank PHI revealed that the average median annual income, the, the median annual income for home care workers is $13,000 per year. Now, I don't know a single town in this country where you can survive, let alone raise a family on $13,000 per year. We can do better than this in America. And as America ages, we must do better. And this is where the opportunity lies. We can and we must seize this moment of demographic change as an opportunity to create a whole new system to care for ourselves, our families, and the workers too. We need a care grid for the future, like the grid of infrastructure that once brought water, electricity, and, and the internet to every home in America. We now need a care grid to bring quality care options to every home in this country. Sound impossible? Well, believe it or not, the seeds are already being planted everywhere. There are creative models and solutions all around. Cities and counties like San Diego are instituting age-friendly community initiatives. The village movement is creating intentional communities where people are sharing resources, pooling resources and services. Um, the Greenhouse Project is a project that is transforming the culture of the nursing home industry. The Washington State Home Care Training Fund is training 45,000 home care workers per year in 12 different languages in Washington State to provide high-quality care for the, for, aging, um, for the aging population and people with disabilities in Washington State. Cooperative Home Care Associates is in the Bronx is the largest worker-owned cooperative in the entire country, supporting their community while creating good jobs. And right here in San Diego, the United Domestic Workers has been working to strengthen the home care workforce in the region for decades. And there's a group over there. Each of these projects and initiatives in their own way is helping to make our systems more caring, more humane, more rooted in a sense of connection and community. But this is really just the beginning of what's needed. We need infrastructure, a major public investment in these systems to support these and other models to scale and we need to be able to support our collective ability to afford the care we need. This is our moment to take caregiving, what has been a private, often isolated conversation, into the national public conversation about the future. From public, from private to public between family caregivers, professional caregivers, older adults, people with disabilities, and people living in multi-generational households, there are over 100 million of us in this country who are directly, every day, affected by the need for care. That is a powerful force for change, if I've ever heard of one. Powerful enough to take on this national challenge and turn it into the opportunity of a lifetime. 
carrying across generations, is busy working in communities around the country, building this national movement to give voice to the 100 million of us who we believe represent the caring majority in America to create the care infrastructure that we need in order to care for one another. But what exactly does this mean? Well, we believe that there actually is quite a bit of agreement about what we need. We need access to quality, affordable care. We need a lot of choice. We need maximum choice to be able to live life on our own terms at any age, particularly to be able to stay in our homes and in our communities. And we need for every single job in this workforce to be a good job that you can take pride in and support your family on. We ultimately believe that it will take a federal policy solution to achieve these goals, one that makes an infrastructure-level investment in care. And we believe that in order to get there, we must build a movement, a movement and a public demand for that solution from the states on up. We were deeply inspired by the progress made by the LGBT movement, which in a very, very short time took an issue with enormous cultural barriers from impossible to inevitable. Through working and winning in states, building a grassroots movement, and changing hearts and minds through television shows like Glee and Will and Grace, the LGBT movement took what seemed impossible and made it inevitable. Taking a page from their playbook, we've developed a plan to make a breakthrough on long-term care by 2020, beginning with a breakthrough in values in our cultural and our cultural norms. We need to embrace aging in a new way, and we need to value caregivers and caregiving in a new way. Both family caregivers and professional caregivers who together, together, make up what we call the care force. We're working with producers and showrunners and screenwriters in Hollywood to seed and tell the stories that can reach and inspire people, the hundred million of us who can resonate with those stories, by seeding stories in film and television that make our collective care story visible in the public imagination we can help shift the very tough cultural environment around this issue, whether it's fear of aging or the invisibility of care. And we've teamed up with an amazing storytelling organization, The Moth, to help leaders in our campaign become excellent storytellers to really tell this story. Here's a short video featuring a few of them, which I believe um, will give you a sense of what I'm talking about. You are a wonderful, joyful, loving person. You are like a father figure to me. You are just gentle. We care about each other, and we take an interest in each other. Before I came to this country, I was taking care of my grandmother. So I felt that I can do the job. I took it for granted that, you know, if I wanted to do anything, I would get up, go out shopping, visiting people. Unfortunately, that's no longer the case.
I noticed you were changing years ago. After I been able to get you to go outside, I got the opportunity then to go places with you. When I got home from rehab after being away for over three months, the first thing I saw were eight balloons that you had put up around my door, welcoming me back. And I knew I was truly home. I am totally honored uh, to be a caregiver for you. It is a great privilege and a joy for me. There are so many things that I still can't do that I depend on you to help me. And the help is given so freely and with so much love. And that makes me feel a lot better. And still independent. But as I said, independent with benefits. We are not only just caregivers. You are a nutritionist. You are a nurse. You're the doctor. You are my mother, Julie Davis, and you are loved by a whole lot of people. You're Dr. Morris Steiner. You are my patient. You're a pediatrician, war veteran. You have taught me things that I know would take me through the rest of my life. You are my community, but you're even more than that. You are my friends. And as much as you've done for me, there's nothing that I wouldn't do for you also. In addition to our storytelling work, um, which is very, very important, it's the heart of our movement, um, we will be introducing state-level legislation and building diverse coalitions to win real, robust public investments in our care infrastructure. State bills will experiment with financing and the creation of infrastructure programs, including uh, improving programs to improve the quality of care jobs. The fo first focus of our energy in states will be in the Aloha State, the great state of Hawaii, where the Long-Term Care Commission has been working hard for two years now and has developed a proposal for universal long-term care in the form of a limited social insurance fund for long-term care that will universally cover Hawaiians for up to 365 days of care in the context of your choice. A broad coalition has come together, a multi-generational coalition, I might add, has come together to make history in Hawaii and to make Hawaii a model and leader on care. We have incredible momentum in the state and are looking forward to having a breakthrough. 
States like Hawaii will create the precedents we need, also the data we need. And the storytelling will create the context for a vibrant, caring majority movement to find its voice and its power. Now, without a doubt, there will be enormous challenges to building the caring majority. The demographic changes in our country are quite profound. By the year 2040, many of us have heard the statistic, the majority of of our nation will be people of color. So we will be a majority-minority nation. And over 20% of the population will be over the age of 65 for the first time. The largest population double. The older population will be significantly wider, and the younger population will be significantly more of color, particularly immigrant. Arizona, as it turns out, is the canary in the mine. Arizona is the state with the most white people over the age of 65 and the most young people of color under the age of 18. So it is our nation's most racially and generationally polarized state. Many believe that it is no accident then that it is also the birthplace of SB 1070, the notorious anti-immigrant state law that set off a chain of similar laws around the country, creating a chilling effect in immigrant communities. This demographic polarization could be a breeding ground for policies like SB 1070 that turn us on one another we could run the risk of becoming the kind of country where our interests uh, are constantly pitted against one another along lines of race and generation. And we are seeing some of that in this current presidential election cycle. Or we could choose a very different path. We could present a vision of the future of this country where everyone is part of the solution and we actually take care of one another. That is the choice before us. Care is one place where our interests do truly come together. The need for care universally affects us all. And the truth is, if we are to truly care for all of us who need it, which is all of us, it is going to take all of us. Immigrant, non-immigrant, family caregiver, professional caregiver, people with disabilities, older people, all of us must be a part of the solution. At the recent White House Conference on Aging, David Hyde Pierce opened the caregiving panel with a simple phrase, we must remember, to age is to live, and to care is to be human. Care connects us to our most basic and universal needs as humanity and coming together to bring value, dignity, and worth to our caregiving relationships can help bring out the best in us as a nation. But it is up to us to make it so. It is up to us to make it clear that there is a caring agenda that unites us and to build the movement that makes it a reality. Another caregiver whose story I wrote about in my book is named Erlinda. Erlinda told me a story about a client she called My Lady, who always asked Erlinda to sing to her. 
Erlinda grew up singing in church and has a beautiful voice. One particular day, rather than ask her to sing to her, she said to Erlinda softly, Give me your hand. And Erlinda knew right away that her beloved lady was going to pass on. So she immediately got on the phone and called the family together. Everyone gathered, and together they surrounded her in a circle of care as she passed on. They became a circle made mostly of love. A circle made mostly of love. As it should be in this country, we deserve nothing less, and it is up to us to make it so. Thank you. Your, your grandmother uh, must be extremely proud because you made us laugh more than three times. Uh, if you were taken by me, her smile of optimism, compassion, and love was quite contagious. And, and the whole movement of aging with kindness and love in a caring community is something that I know here in San Diego uh, we are attempting to do. Um, Nobel Prize winner Dr. Bernard Lowen in the, uh, his book The Lost Art of Healing wrote, the seemingly impossible is possible when creating a movement of the committed with admiration. And so we are on our journey in San Diego with the committed um, in creating an age-friendly uh, community, but perhaps more than age-friendly, one that has that compassion and love. So I would uh, ask you, as the moderator, you have index cards, uh, to think of some questions uh, that we'd love to ask, that you'd love to ask, Ijen, and we'll be accepting those. And I have the first question, uh, and the honor to ask her the first question. And we're going to switch places. In paving our journey for purposeful living for all San Diegans, what are some of the essential first steps we need to achieve in becoming the age-friendly community? Oh, well, I know that this process has already been underway because in order to make the kind of progress that's been made here, a lot of groundwork has been made and there is already a lot of leadership um, but I would say that there's uh, two key pieces here. One is really listening to uh, what people are experiencing here in this particular community. Every community is different, and the needs and dreams of people here in San Diego um, will be also specific to the life of this city and this location. So listening and also, there's a, t there's a tremendous amount of awareness um, that needs to come about. This is um, an issue that all of us are touched by, whether we think about it in terms of aging or about caregiving. Um, we are a multi-generational society, and we are all touched by the need to create stronger systems and infrastructure to support the multi-generational nature of our communities to be able to live well at any age. And 
And yet, it, is, it has not, the issue has not risen to the level of saliency um, and the kind of public discussion that, that frankly is needed, but also that is, more, that is reflective of the reality. When so many of us are experiencing and challenged by these issues, it should be a number one priority. Um, for our elected officials, for, um, for innovators and entrepreneurs, for leaders across sectors, and we still need to raise awareness to make sure that that happens. So I would say awareness, listening, and also in any vibrant movement, there is a role for everyone. And we must create the kind of movement architecture that allows for everyone to have a role um, and an ability to take action, to become more active over time, and to help lead us forward. I love the, uh, the call to action. Uh, you all know when you signed up this evening, you're going to have some homework. Um, and I, Jen, talked about the importance right now about the conversation, the national conversation. But it starts in home. It starts with us. Jen, can you offer some suggestions and ideas of how do we start that conversation? And um, how do we achieve collective impact with many of the conversations that then coalesce? Mm. A great question. Um, well, one thing that we did with uh, the book tour is to really encourage people to have tools like books um, and other, perhaps the video from tonight's um, discussion and many other materials that are being produced here um, and by the Age-Friendly Community Network to have a conversation at your dinner table and keep it simple and know that it won't be the first conversation. It'll be a process. Um, But we had two very simple questions for discussion, Uh, one being how, how can we as a family prepare for our future caregiving needs? And two, what might be the joys of caring for one another? What do we foresee will be the joys of supporting and caring for one another? And I think we can have that conversation about preparing and becoming age-friendly communities um, by asking ourselves, right, how do we plan, how do we become um, ready? How do we prepare for the needs of our growing aging community? And what do we foresee will be the opportunities and the joys of that process? As you look out now, and this is a tough one, um, but as you look out to the future of care, of the age-friendly, what does it begin to look like 10, 20, 30 years from now? Or I should say, what would you hope it looked like 10, 20, 30 years from now? Well, um, in my vision, um, and I think in many of our visions who are doing this work uh, in this room and beyond, uh, it is for there to be truly uh, intergenerational communities um, and uh, transportation systems, housing development, um, urban planning that reflects um, multi-generational communities and living Uh, people of all different abilities living together in integrated and healthy ways, Um, and that there would be universal, I call it universal family care, Um, but essentially 
uh, a, a support for the ability of working families to afford child care, uh, long-term care, and paid f- to have paid family leave, that we actually account for the work that goes into raising families um, as a fundamental part of our new social contract. So support for families, um, universally designed cities and communities, and a caring culture between us. How can we keep the cost of home care and residential care affordable while elevating home care workers' salaries to fair levels? It's a great question. I mean, I think that right now we're experimenting with both um, reorganizing existing systems to create new efficiencies um, and reduce waste, whether it's in the health care system or in the Medicaid system. Um, Everybody knows that institution-based care is much more expensive, much more costly than home and community-based care and services. And so moving um, much more towards a home and community-based model can um, save uh, and the system tremendous amount of resources while also enhancing um, quality of life. And so that's one example of how we can actually redesign or retool existing systems. But I do think that we need to really invest, as I say, in the care infrastructure and in our systems and our ability to afford the care we need. And I think the Hawaii bill provides a model for one approach to that, um, where we're actually helping to provide economic support to families so that they can actually afford to pay living wages. Hi, Jen. What, what coalitions came together in Hawaii to get that legislation passed? Um, there were a tremendous number of faith-based organizations who were involved. Um, there's a project called Project Dana, which is a Buddhist network of 500 caregivers who spend their volunteer time supporting elders and people with disabilities in the community. They are a huge driving force um, behind the legislation. There are the, some of the sort of more usual suspects, like AARP um, and retiree associations, but then there's also new family caregiver associations, a caregiver co-op um, called the Angels, the Care Angels Cooperative. Um, and then there's also youth and student organizations from campuses who've gotten involved who really care about what's happening with their parents and their grandparents and also um, know that they've got student debt and lots of other economic responsibilities and want a plan for how they're going to care for their, their grandparents and their parents. Where do you think the money will come from to pay for increased government payment for care? Mm-hmm. Well, I touched on it a little bit, but one thing I'd add is that the health care system is going through a huge transformation right now. And I do believe that in enhancing the role of caregivers, we're moving towards a prevention-based health care system. And, um, and what better prevention than good caregiving? Um, If we really invest in and enhance in the role of caregivers, both family caregivers and professional caregivers, I do believe, and there is starting to be some data on this, that we can actually prevent unnecessary emergency room visits, better manage chronic illnesses, prevent 
hospital readmittances, that there's ways that we can actually um, both improve healthcare outcomes for older adults and create new efficiencies in the healthcare system. And we are going to be doing a bunch of research um, to, to really document this and have data around this, but we think that there's a huge opportunity there given the way that the healthcare system is evolving and the real need to create new integration um, between and across um, non-medical forms of caregiving and the healthcare system. I have a question, but I'm going to add to it with permission. So we have 62,000 people living with Alzheimer's disease in San Diego, Mm -hmm. and it's the third leading cause of death for older adults, second cause of death in the country. And a neurologist, uh, Dr. Lobetz here, said when he treats someone with Alzheimer's, he's treating really two people, the caregiver and the person with the dementia or Alzheimer's. So building on that, who takes care of the caregivers? And how and what should be done to ensure the caregivers are also taken care of? It's a great question. I think it's all of our responsibilities to care for the caregivers. And part of creating a culture of care in the future is recognizing the work and the energy, the life force that caregivers, both family caregivers and professional caregivers, are providing. And actually providing them with real material supports, respite care, training, support groups, there's, there's all kinds of now new mindfulness programs for caregivers, ways of helping caregivers also care for themselves, um, managing stress and other kinds of um, uh, implications of the caregiving role. And so we have to really invest in those. I think that that is absolutely core to creating the kind of care infrastructure that we need, really valuing and taking care of our caregivers at the heart of it. We have an expression uh, with Live Well San Diego that you have to age well to live well. And iGen has given us tremendous, filled this room, I think, with excitement, optimism, and clearly that passion uh, that we need to do for San Diego, as she does for helping us throughout the country. Let's give her a huge round of applause. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.